Well, two weeks ago, I ministered through a message that I called Dead to Sin, Alive to God. That message came out of Romans chapter 6, verse 11, and it reads this way. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that in the Word? Okay. The Bible says that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The spirit of that message bathed our hearts in the incontrovertible truths that Jesus died once for all so that we could die all at once. We don't have to go through this daily charade of dying to sin. We are already dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin, though, does not entitle us to live reckless lives, careless lives, unrestrained lives, lives without purpose, unproductive lives. The lives we now live unto the Lord should always, always reflect His goodness and His love. We should be a mirror of what God looks like, full of love, full of grace, full of truth every single place we go. And the only thing I know that will make you look that way is when you get a revelation of His love for you and His grace for you how much He cares for you, and the fact that you are already dead to sin, you have nothing to prove, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I thought the Lord said to me, a believer's character should really be above reproach. And the lives that we live should never contradict the grace that He has shown to us. Did you know that there are ministers in the United States of America that are vehemently and violently against the message of extravagant grace? Now you say, Pastor Mark, what do you mean by extravagant grace? They don't call it that. They call it greasy grace. And every time I hear that, I want to tell you something. I know water boils at 212, blood probably does too. And I'm right at about 211 every time I hear somebody call it greasy grace because grace is another name for Jesus. And if you're calling my Jesus greasy, man, I'm telling you what, you better be glad he took all this fight out of me because uh, I'm pretty close at that point in time. When I say extravagant, what I'm literally saying is extravagant means excessive. It means above, and it means beyond. It means it's an ever-increasing. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, the Bible says, where sin increased. It's not denying that sin doesn't increase from time to time. It says where sin increased, it said grace. Grace increased all the more. So we don't sin just so that we can prove that point. Like I heard it said yesterday, we don't go out and do something wrong so that we can go to jail and start a jail ministry. Why not just start the jail ministry and just go in there? You don't need to do something wrong to just go in there and be a a minister in the jail. (laughs) All ministers that I have ever met will say, yep, you are saved by Jesus. We won't argue that point. But then that's where the line gets drawn. And there's a large group of people that say, we believe you're saved by Jesus, but we believe you're kept by you. Friends, that is not biblical. I'm telling you, that is not biblical. I'm in that remnant group over here that says, no, wait a minute. We are saved by Jesus, and we are kept by Jesus. It's a finished work. He did it all. I get to come along. I'm the beneficiary of what Jesus has done. I'm thankful for guys like Joseph Prince that pioneered the way of grace. I really love that man. Joseph Prince, he has started a revolution of grace. He would be compared to the faith man, Kenneth Copeland, but the revolution of grace, Kenneth Copeland, the revolution of faith. And so when we think about this message of grace, and I always hear this, and it bugs me when I hear it. They say, you're telling them they can have permission to sin. Listen to me very carefully, because I want this to go on record. 
Grace is not permission to sin. Grace is provision for sin. And that provision was made by Jesus Christ himself, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's your grace message right there. Who's the he? God. For he, for God hath made him. Who's him? Jesus. For God hath made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin. There's our provision right there. Our provision is the Lamb of God. It's Jesus. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God's response to our sin was, I need to give them Jesus. I need to give them grace. Amen. So that's what I want to minister for a little while about this morning as I preach through a message that I'm calling grace, God's response for sin. And what I want you to walk away with this morning is that the strongest motivation we have to refrain and stop sinning is not the law of God. That is not our strongest motivation. In Romans chapter 8, verse 3, we see these words. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin, not condemned you. That's really important. He didn't condemn you. He condemned sin in the flesh. So we see that it says for what the law could not do. What could the law not do? It could not make us righteous. It really couldn't make us love God. It couldn't keep us from sinning. And the law could not remove sin. You cannot be righteous based upon the law. But God, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That scripture right there perfectly dovetails with the one I just read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Romans 8, verse 3 says, this is what the law could not do. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, this is what the son could do. Do you see that? Do you see that juxtaposition? Isn't that powerful that the law couldn't do this, but love could? And that's what Jesus is. He's just the embodiment of love. What the law could not do, Jesus did, though. So, the strongest motivation we have to abstain from sin is not the law of God. It is the love of God. It's the love of God expressed through grace. Grace expressed through the cross. The cross expressed through Jesus. Oh, man. You know what? This will be helpful for you the next time you and I are caught in the vice grips of temptation to sin. Here's my encouragement. Do not look to the law to restrain you. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. I'm going to tell you something. If, if you try to go down that road, you'll want to do it all the more. Because the law, the Bible says, incites us to sin. It makes us aware of sin. And incites us to sin. So when we're caught in the crosshairs of the temptation to sin, don't look to the law to be your friend. You know, Santa, that Santa song, you better watch out. <laughs> you better not pout. You better not cry. I'm telling you why. It always keeps pointing you back to you. You better watch out. You better not pout. You better not cry. I'm telling you why. Friends, I want to tell you something. Jesus watched out for all of us. Jesus cried out for all of us. In fact, in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers 
of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believeth on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What was he saying? He was saying, listen, are you thirsty? Come unto me and drink. You got a temptation? Come unto me and drink. Forget the Kool-Aid that Hollywood offers you and come unto me and drink and you will find out of your belly, I mean your inner man, this is where I feel Jesus. I don't know as though I feel him in my arms and my hands. It's maybe once in a while when I get the, the goosebumps. But this is where the Spirit's at. This is where I feel the Lord. Amen. This will be helpful the next time we're caught in a situation where we're tempted to do something wrong. The first question that God asked Adam, I don't think God asked him, did he want a wife? The Bible just says God knew he needed a wife and brought him a wife. He said it's not good that man should be alone, so he made a wife for him. So he didn't say, Adam, what do you think? <laughs> Would you like a wife? God just knew what he needed, and he said, I'm going to bring you a wife. But the first question recorded in the Bible that God asked Adam is Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and verses 9. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden and in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now I want you to make note that the word Lord is capitalized, all capitals. And anytime you see the word Lord all capitalized in the Old Testament, literally it speaks of a covenant God. Adam had a covenant with God. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord called to the man, where are you? First question you see God ask Adam in the Bible. So what we see here is Adam has already blown it. Adam has already blown it. Adam's already sinned. But God still kept his appointment to come down and visit with Adam, his son. God knew that Adam was going to blow up before he put him in the garden, didn't he? Do you want robot children? Really? I mean, do you really want children that will love you because they're just mechanically made to do that? No, you want them to have free choice. If Adam wouldn't have blown it, somebody would have. We couldn't have got this far down the road without somebody blowing it, right? God gave him free will in the garden, and he blew it. So, first question, look at the words, where are you? Now, let's fast forward and go over into the New Testament, and let's find the very first question in the New Testament that was asked, okay? It's recorded by the Magi. The Magi were speaking in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. I think it's pretty interesting to go from where are you to, to where is he. Friends, I want to tell you something. That's what Triumphant Grace Ministries is all about. We are never to stand in front of people and say, where are you? Now exactly where are you at in the Lord? Where are you spiritually speaking? No, we always want to say, where is he? That's what we've been doing for two years is, is keep finding Jesus. Where is he? Where is he? There it is. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Friends, when you and I are caught in the vice grips of temptation to sin, this is the perfect occasion for us to plant our flag in the soil of grace. Oh, man. And ask ourselves this question. Shall I sin against much goodness and such love? I want to tell you something. When you stop whatever is coming at you and you begin to think about all of His goodness and you begin to think about all of His love, and you ask yourself just simply that one question, shall I sin against much goodness and such love? You know what you'll find? The answer is no every single time. I know a man personally that was caught in the crosshairs of the temptation to commit a sin. 
The enemy came in like a flood. I mean, he was bombarding this man's mind. I mean, this man was ebbing and flowing, coming and going. He thought he was about to go under. The enemy was just about to take over his mind. And he chose, he said, in the spirit realm to reach out with whatever strength he had and take and grab his flag and plant it, thrust it into the soil of God's love. And he said it was then instantly and completely the stronghold that had plagued me for decades. We're not talking about days. We're talking about decades. That thing that he had been wrestling with for a long time, he said, when I planted my flag in the soil of love, he said it was completely and immediately broken off my life. He says it was dismantled and stripped of its allurement and power. It's good to know that because everybody wrestles with something from time to time. I want to tell you something. You can plant your flag in the soil of God's grace, in the soil of God's love. See, grace is not just the provision for sin. Grace is the provision from sin, right? We don't need to wait till we fail in order to call upon God's grace, we can call upon God's grace in advance to keep us from failing. He's there for us. So you say, Pastor Mark, what do you mean by planting a flag? Can you make that more clear? I'll be happy to. When you look up the word banner in the concordance, it will say flag. So what is a flag? A flag is a banner. That's all it is, a banner. Banners represent things that are special. Someone or something that is very special. Banners speak of ownership. Banners speak of citizenship. Banners speak of relationship. Banners speak of identity. But most of all, banners speak of love. You see, we fly our flag in the United States of America. We fly our banners in the United States. We don't do that to say we're Americans. Everybody knows, your neighbor knows you're an American. You don't have to fly your American flag for him to know you're an American. We fly our flags, we fly our banners to say, we love this country. We're proud of this country. In spite of all the chaos is going on, friends, this is the greatest country in the world. And so when you fly your flag, you're literally saying your banner, if you will, you're saying, I'm doing this to tell you I love my country and I stand with my country. Song of Solomon waves the greatest banner man has ever known. It's a book about two people that are deeply in love with one another. There's eight chapters. I want to whet your appetite to go read that book. It's a, it's a powerful book. All they can say are good things about each other. There's never a bad word to each other. They never criticize one another. They're never mean to one another. They don't have a bad spirit. They're not cold. They're not indifferent to one another. Song of Solomon is poetic. Song of Solomon is romantic. Song of Solomon is captivating. It should be a bestseller. It should be actually a prerequisite before you get married to go and read Song of Solomon and say, Sir, treat your wife like that. Lady, treat your husband like that. And I'm going to tell you something. You're going to have the most awesome marriage you have ever seen. But when you read through the Song of Solomon, I want you to see something. It's an allegory. It's an allegory. In other words, what it's saying here, this is more than just a love letter to a man and to a woman. Who cares about people? They're not even named in here. It's an allegory. What it's a picture of, it's a picture of Christ. It's a picture of Christ in the church, Christ and his bride, him pursuing her and her pursuing him in love, romantically, caught up, captivated, pursuing the bride with much goodness and such love. It's about a bride whose vital signs, read it one time, her vital signs are off the chart. Her blood pressure is sky high. Her pulse is racing. Her heart is pounding out of her chest for this man. Wow, what a man this man must be. It's Christ is who it is. I told this story before, but I got to say it again. 
When I worked at Motorola several years ago, I wanted to join the, the fitness center there, and you had to go through this health evaluation. So you had to go down there and meet the lady who kind of ran the gymnasium there, and it was state-of-the-art. It had the most awesome equipment. It was all free. Come anytime, 24-7, whenever you want to come and go, it's up to you. But they had to do a health assessment to make sure that you were in good health, okay? So what they do is they, they go through all of their verbal stuff, and they write every, they have bunches of questions, and then they take you and show you all the equipment, and you got, you're just thinking, ah, oh, I just want to get on this stuff. She says, okay, now I want you to do these types of workouts for 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And so then she has you come and sit down in a quiet place in the office. And she moved in real close to me and put that blood pressure cuff on me and started squeezing it up. And she made note of my BP. She checked my pulse and made note of that. She made note of all my vital signs. And she said, I'm going to leave you alone for about 15 or 20 minutes, and then I'll come back. See, what she was doing was this. She wanted to see, what are your vital signs right now, just getting done working out, and then let me check you in 15 or 20 minutes and make sure that things are dropping, things are coming down. And so as she was sitting over there on the other side of the room, the Holy Spirit, he's such a chatterbox, I tell you. He just began to speak to my heart and said, why don't you just tell her about Jesus? Why don't you just tell her about how much I love her? And so I'm just meditating. I'm, I'm thinking about God's love and God's goodness and His grace, His mercy. And I'm just caught up with my eyes closed, just meditating on the goodness of my Lord. Pretty soon, 15, 20 minutes went by. She took her rightful place there next to me. And when I turned to look at her, I mean, her face was right there. She's got her cuff on me, and I'm just staring at her. And I just said, you know how much God loves you. I said, oh, I'm going to tell you what he did for me. And I just began to tell her what God has done in my life and how much I was passionately in love with Jesus. She was just being quiet, doing her job. And when she got done checking my vital, she says, well, that's weird. I've never seen anything like this. She checked him again. She said, this is the weirdest thing. I think I'm dying. I don't know what's going on at this point in time. She said, this is really weird. I said, what's weird? She said, your vital signs are higher than when you first sat down. She said, in every situation, they go down. They don't go up. You've been resting for the last 15, 20 minutes. I said, oh, wait a minute. I've been resting physically, but in my heart, I have been doing somersaults, lady. And I just began to share the love of Christ. This is what this lady's doing. She is passionately in love with this man. Who is this man? Let me tell you how he refers to her. These are terms of endearment now. He calls her sweet. Would you like to be called sweet by your husband? He calls her delightful. He says, you are pleasing to me. He says, you're graceful. And then he intensifies a little bit, and he has the audacity. Now again, picture, this is really Jesus talking to you. This is Jesus talking to the church. This is Jesus talking to the bride. And he has the audacity to say, you are flawless. And then he even goes over the top and he says, in fact, you're the perfect one. You are the perfect one. On two occasions he says, you have stolen my heart. Hear Jesus say that to you this morning, you've stolen his heart. He says, you have stolen my heart. On three occasions he says, you are lovely. Lovely, lovely, lovely. And then on no less than nine occasions, he calls her beautiful. Do you know what that does for a woman's heart? Oh, if Valerie was in here right now, I'm telling you, she would say, don't, no, don't, just keep moving. Just keep moving. But I'll never forget the first time I called her darling. She says she doesn't remember it, but I remember it. 
because the first time I called her darling, it literally skipped a beat in her heart. She went, and I thought, wow, she liked that word. Do you see this romantic love affair going on between these two? The woman's heart has not only been aroused, and it's not only been awakened, and it's not only been consumed with the love of Christ, but it's been hijacked with ecstasy. She thinks about him morning, noon, and night. It's the way Christ thinks about us all day long. It's the way we should think about Christ. It's a pursuing, relentless love. It's a restraining love. That's what I was getting at when I said, you can't look to the cold law to stop you from doing something, but you can look to a husband. You can look to a husband who loves you like that and keeps calling you these wonderful names. In Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 5, she cries out, Strengthen me with raisins. Refresh me with apples. For I am faint with love. It's a, kind of a weird scripture. She has been so consumed with this love affair for her husband. I, I, so consumed with this love affair with Jesus. She's forgotten to eat, quite frankly. And so she's feeling it physically, and she's saying, hey, I need some raisins, whatever you got here, raisins, some apples, whatever you got, I need something. I'm feeling a little faint. <laughs> In Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we find these words. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. As you read Song of Solomon, you see she talks for a little while, and then he talks. And then the friends talk. And then he talks. And then she talks. And then he says something. And then the friends. It's like a gigantic text message going on. Back and forth, back and forth. They're having this amazing love affair. They keep inviting friends in to talk. I mean, he's doing most talking, she's doing most talk, but the friends interject once in a while too. But I want to take you back to the, the first verse where it says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. How many times have you heard this preach? And believe me, I have done it in years past too. They've got songs out like this that says, Jesus is the rose of Sharon. Jesus is the lily of the valley. You know that song. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. You, you know I'm talking about the fairest of 10,000 to my soul? We always think that we're calling Jesus the rose of Sharon and Jesus the lily of the valley. That is not biblical. The woman is talking here. The woman is talking and she says, I am a rose of Sharon. I am a lily of the valleys. And he confirms it. He says, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. And I was thinking about that as I was meditating on what she was saying. I'm a rose of Sharon. I'm a lily of the valley. It's interesting that she would pick the two most awesome flowers and most recognized flowers on the earth. I mean, you can't look at a rose and go, hmm, I wonder what that is. The rose represents love and a lily represents purity. She said, I'm a rose of Sharon. I'm a lily of the valley. I thought, man, she understands her identity. You know, so many people in the body of Christ don't understand their identity. When you understand that you are a rose of Sharon in his eyes, you are a lily of the valleys, it changes 
everything. So where, where did she get this identity? Where did she get this revelation that she was the rose? Where did she get this revelation that she was the lily? From him. He's the one who gave it to her when he said, you're beautiful. You're gorgeous. You're pure. You're loved. You're pleasant to my eyes. You're flawless. You're fearless. You're all of these wonderful things. I'm telling you that's who you are. And she said, yep, that's exactly who I am. I'm a rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Oh, man. Friends, criticize the message of grace if you want to. But I want to tell you something. That is what the message of grace will do for you. It will constantly tell you you are delightful. You are perfect. You are altogether lovely. You are beautiful. And you are loved and pure. He says, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. And then she says, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover. You know, I've been hunting before, deer hunting. And when you're deep in the forest, I have yet to find an apple tree in the middle of the forest. It's a weird place. And she is saying, listen, you know what, honey? I can find you in some of the strangest places. I want to tell you something. I have found Jesus in some of the strangest places. And he's found me in some of the strangest places. We don't have to be at an altar somewhere. Friends, you can be driving down the road. I remember I was going down Highway 173 one time, and I was just worshiping the Lord. Man, I was so caught up in worship. I was going through this little town. I was doing the speed limit, but I was going through this little town caught up in worship, not even recognizing there was a police officer over there on the side of the road. And as I went by him, he started waving at me because he thought I was waving at him. I was caught up in worship. I was caught up in ecstasy with my Lord and my Savior. You can find him in some of the strangest places. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I don't like to sit in his shade. Oh, he's cool. He's refreshing. And his fruit is sweet to my taste. Now, let me read these scriptures again here. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Now watch the very next verse. He has brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner, his banner over me is love. She has this revelation. He's the one. We sing this song all the time. He has brought me to his banqueting table. Remember that one? His banner over me is love. I am his and he is mine. His banner over me is love. His banner, his flag over me is love. Jesus planted his own flag in our heart to signify that you are someone special in his eyes. His banner speaks of ceremony. His banner speaks of covenant. His banner speaks of citizenship in the kingdom of God. His banner speaks of of relationship. His banner speaks of ownership. His banner speaks of identity. This is who you are as the bride of Christ. This is your identity. But his banner, most of all, speaks of love. And she got the revelation that his banner over me is love. Oh, his banner over me, love. Friends, the message of grace is that God has made provision for sin, not permission to sin. He has made provision. His name is Jesus. It came with much goodness and such grace. Jesus sees his bride as the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys In fact, he says, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. Friends, I want to say something to you. Let's just be real, okay? There are going to be days that you feel like you're a lily among thorns. 
I know you wish you were always the centerpiece of the table, the centerpiece of the room, but there are going to be days when you feel like you're a lily among thorns. Days when we think, God, how can you love me when I'm surrounded by thorns? How can you love me when I'm surrounded by these thistles? How can you love me in the midst of all this? Friends, let's back up one chapter to Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 6. She says, Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I have neglected. This is the woman talking. The number one reason I believe that most ministers burn out, hear me carefully, is because they spend so much time taking care of other vineyards and neglecting their own. And they never discover that his banner over them is love. I want to tell you something, love will take you a long way. I'm not saying we don't work for God. I I work my fingers to the bone for the Lord. I do out of love, not out of the compulsion of any other reason. I do it because I love Him and because I love you and because I love people. And I want the whole world to see this message of His love, this message of His grace. They never discovered that His banner over them is love. They're working full-time jobs and studying to preach more messages and they haven't taken time like this woman to chase their lover, Jesus. You know, over the last two years, that we've had this ministry, there's been times that we've felt like we've had to neglect our own vineyard because we've been taking care of other vineyards, the church, the school. There's been other things in our life. I'm so thankful next month we graduate. Thank God for graduation. So that will free up our Saturdays. That will really be a blessing and a help. This is a puzzle. This is one piece at a time. I understand how this woman's feeling. I understand what she's saying here. Do you know June 1st is my wife's last day on her job? We have made a decision for her to leave her job. She's been there for many years, makes very good money. But the truth of the matter is, we don't have time to take care of all these vineyards. I'm just telling you, our family has paid a price. And so Valerie's last day at work will be June 1st so that we can tend to the vineyards that God has put us in, the church, one another. You know the way it works at our house? If Valerie has the service on Sunday... She spends the evening studying, so she can't study me. When it's my turn to minister, I spend the evening studying. I don't get much time to study her. But what I'm getting at is there are seasons, just seasons. So don't grow weary in well-doing, the Bible says. And when you feel dark, when you feel darkened by the sun, oh my goodness, just realize it is only a season. There are dark days. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. The interesting thing I I look for when I saw her make this comment, though, in Song of Solomon chapter 1, verse 6, I wanted to see how her lover responded. I went to see, what does Jesus say about this? Do you know what? Her lover never even acknowledges that she even said that. She said, I'm dark. I'm darkened by the sun. I've been neglecting my ministry. I've been neglecting my own vineyard. And you know what he says to her? (laughs) You're beautiful. You are beautiful. You're lovely. You're flawless. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 2. Like a lily among thorns. Did you notice it says like a lily? A lily among thorns. Did you notice that a is singular, but thorns is plural? So it's not too hard to figure out the picture that he's drawn in our mind. He's drawn a picture in our mind of this vast area full of thorns with a lily in it. 
See, there's only one bride of Christ, friends. Just one bride. We're all the bride of Christ. But just one bride. There's not many brides. One bride. A lily among thorns. God is planting an image in our heads of a lily among thorns. What is he saying? He is saying, you stand out. You are beautiful, even when you're surrounded by thorns. Even if you go so far as to say, I've blown it, God. I'm dark. I've been darkened by my circumstances. I've blown it. He still says, you are pleasing. He still calls you flawless. He calls you delightful, beautiful, and he still loves you. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 2. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. And when I was looking at this and I was meditating on this word, thorns, 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 I wanted to see where that came up in the Bible for the first time so that you could have proper framework. We call it the law of first mention. Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. God has made man. He's breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man stands up a living being, starts worshiping the Father. What happened? Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. We've only fast-forwarded by about seven or eight verses. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now I want you to make note of where this is found at. It's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 through 17. Let's just fast forward only 14 verses. I don't know if Moses was just hitting the highlights when he wrote Genesis, but it sure didn't take very long for this to happen. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What man did is when he sinned against God... His eyes were open, the Bible says. He realized he was naked, and he says, I've got to cover myself. Hey, the fig tree got nice big leaves. Let's get some of those fig leaves. And he began to cover he and his wife. What that's a picture of, the fig leaf represents self-righteousness. That's all it represents. So what the man was saying is, I have got to cover myself for what I've done. Oh, friends, you, you never have to cover yourself for what you've done. He just didn't know any better. He said, I've got to cover myself. What was God's response to Adam and Eve when they had sinned and they had covered themselves with righteousness? I want to show you what, his response, what God's response was. God came down and asked that question. Remember that first question, where are you? And he saw them with fig leaf. And then the Bible says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. That word made literally means provision. He provided for Adam and his wife. Now, what I love about this right here, the Lord God made garments of skin. See, nowhere in the Bible does it say God killed an animal. Read it careful, though. He made garments of skin. He didn't just get out some heavenly shears, run it over a lamb, and run it through the cotton gin, and poof, there's some clothes. It said he made garments of skin. I've never watched any animals run around with no skin. 
That means he had to sacrifice an animal, no doubt it was a lamb, and made clothes for Adam and said, now listen, this is just typology of Christ. You see the lamb being slain right there. He made garments of skin and covered Adam and his wife Eve. You see, I think what God was doing even then is he was showing Adam that he was going to provide a substitutionary death. There's going to be an atonement for what you've done. Something has to shed its blood. It's a type and shadow of Jesus shedding his blood as the innocent lamb. Now, we have to fast forward a little bit because eventually Adam and Eve began to have children. Cain was the first one, and then Abel. We know Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. So eventually, Adam had to put his arm around Cain and Abel as they were walking. And <laughs> I know you think the house we got now is great, but I got to tell you about where we used to live. He eventually had to have that conversation with him. I don't know what that conversation sounded like, but I think it inspired Abel to become a shepherd because I believe Adam told him, our daddy killed an innocent lamb, shed its blood, covered your mom and I with garments of righteousness. And so when Abel becomes a shepherd, he does not raise sheep for food. He raises them for two things, clothing and sacrifices. That's it. Exactly what God did in the beginning. I'm going to shed the innocent blood of that lamb for your clothing and to pay for your sin. Sacrifice. You don't see anything where God told him to do sacrifices. All of a sudden they show up and they start doing sacrifices. So Adam would have told his son, son, God did a sacrifice for us. Very cool imagery. First picture of us being clothed with Christ. Right there. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 5, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering. Watch what he brought. Fat portions. You know, in order to bring fat portions, you've got to kill something. We're talking about meat here, friends. He brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Bible says the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. It's not that he didn't like Cain. He loved Cain as well. But he says, listen, that reminds me of my son. You grow all the vegetables you want. You can sacrifice them. To you. This reminds me of what my son has done for you. Every time you kill a lamb, Abel, every time you offer it to me, this is a reminder of what my son has done for mankind. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 through 4, we find these words, By faith, Abel brought God a better offering. I think it's interesting. When we look in Hebrews chapter 11, we call that the Hall of Faith chapter of the Bible. The first man mentioned is Abel. Isn't that interesting? He's the first man that's mentioned in there. All those powerful men of God, Moses and Noah, and all these powerful powerhouse men, the first one that's mentioned is Abel. And it says, By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous. That's how he commends you, righteous. When God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith Abel still speaks even though he is dead, just like us. Even though we are dead to sin, we are still speaking. Even though we're alive to Christ, we are still speaking. And then, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, to Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, 
you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It, what? The soil. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Adam sinned, God made provision. Here's the difference. Adam was covered with the shadow, we're covered with the substance. See, Adam was covered with the shadow, the type and shadow. We are covered with the real things, and that's what Hebrews says. It talks about the shadow and the substance. In Romans chapter 13, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, and his list of sins could have just went on and on and on. Let me just say this, for the people who claim that the grace message is a license of sin, I have something to say to you. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It doesn't teach us to say yes. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. God tells us how we can live a lifestyle where we're not walking under condemnation, where we're not feeling like we've blown it all the time. The very next verse, Romans chapter 13, verse 14, he says, Rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, the true substance, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, what is he saying? He's saying, listen, if you'll do this, you can quit being sin conscious. You can quit being thorn conscious. You don't need to go there anymore. In closing, I want to say this. In Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, this is kind of how she closes out telling Jesus, telling her lover what she thinks. She says, my lover is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Remember, we're not under the shadow anymore. We're under the substance. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, she says, turn, my lover. The lover's identity is finally revealed in that scripture right there. You see, the Hebrew word for our English word browses right there, the actual Hebrew word behind that word is this word, ra'ah. Ra'ah. What does ra'ah mean? It means shepherd. So literally what she said in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, she said, my lover is mine and I am his. He shepherds among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Turn, my lover. That word ra'ah is found there in Psalm 23, verse 1, when it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And I spent so much time on that last word, want, right there, because in the Hebrew, that word right there, kosser, it literally means fail. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not fail. I cannot fail. Oh, yes, I'll stumble. Yes, I'll fall. But the righteous will get up again. I cannot fail in the spiritual realm. Maybe in the natural, yes. Maybe in this world I walk through, yes. But I shall not fail because the Lord is my shepherd. Sheep trust in the shepherd. I'm sorry, this just really gets me excited. Her lover is finally revealed. He was hiding, browsing around, feeding around in the lilies. 
the Ra'ah was walking through the lily. Do you see him? Do you see him walking? He's a very present. The Bible says he's an ever-present God in times of trouble, in times of whatever you need him. He's ever-present. Believe me, we don't need to go looking for him. He's already there browsing among the lilies. Oh, man, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then some of my closing scriptures. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 29, we find these words. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. I believe that Jesus wore a crown of thorns on his head so that he as our last Adam would be able to reach all the way back into Genesis and tell the first Adam, your curse has been reversed. And then he'd be able to reach back into Song of Solomon and tell the church. He'd be able to tell his bride that he always sees her as a rose of Sharon and a lily of the valleys, even when she is among thorns. Friends, that is the message of grace. That is the message of grace. You say, Pastor Mark, it sounded more like a love story to me than it did grace. You'll never embrace the message of grace until you first know how much he loves you. Grace seems impossible unless you know how much he loves you, unless you came to the revelation of that wonderful truth that his banner over you is love. Friends, I'm so happy that our great Ra'ah, our great shepherd, wore our thorns as a crown on his head so that the thorn of sin could no longer penetrate my heart. Never again. We are dead to sin and alive to God for one reason and one reason only, and that is grace, God's response for sin. Father, I just want to thank you that you take deep truths, hidden truths, and you make them so plain and so simple that we can all say, I got it. Daddy, I want to thank you for Jesus. I want to thank you that Jesus is exalted and he sits at your right hand. I want to thank you that he browses among the lilies. I want to thank you, Father, that when I feel like a lily among thorns, my shepherd is browsing around me. And because my shepherd is there, I can just rest in the unchangeable reality that I am loved and I am pure in his eyes. He sees me as a rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. In Jesus' name, amen.